So welcome to Happy Hour at the Buddhist Society in Western Australia. And I say Happy Hour because if one knows how to meditate, it's always very beautiful, joyful, and a nice rest. And again, this is the ongoing class for meditation. If those who are coming for the introduction to meditation class, that is in the room uh, to my right. But nevertheless, if you have some idea about meditation, sitting in here, you shouldn't get the hang of it. Because the meditation is very, very simple. It's all about the art of doing nothing. Actually not doing nothing, but nothing doing. Because they just poured out this water, the old, oh, it's nice and cool. <laughs> the old simile, how do I get this water to be perfectly still? You've seen this many times before. Anybody hasn't seen this before? Not, not, not much point doing it then, is it? <laughs> Very quickly, you've forgotten. <laughs> no, anyway, just you can't hold it still, you can't focus on it and make it still. It's not the case you're not mindful because it, it doesn't get still. Only one way in the world to get this water to be perfectly still and so simple, so easy, you just put it down. It moves more at first, but it takes patience. The more patience you have, the more you learn how to wait and wanting nothing in the whole world. And just being observing of that, and soon, it's already more still than I could ever hold it. And after a few mo more moments, that'll become perfectly still, it's pretty close now. That's actually how we meditate. When we meditate, uh, first of all, you may be restless, I've been doing things, thinking things, coping with things. But when you start meditating, you know, you learn how to relax your body and make it nice and restful. That's kind of important because what that does, it takes away a lot of the business and where you are staying with your body is quite comfortable then. And once your body is you know, in reasonably comfort comfortable, then it's usually easy to rest the mind as well. What do you mean, rest the mind? Don't do anything, just observe. But when you do observe, as I said on Friday night, observe with kindness. It's beautiful um, allowing whatever's happening right now to be. And sometimes I didn't have the opportunity to say in detail what happens when you just allow things to be. But if you allow things to be with kindness, there's this amazing simile of the Buddha, the anger-eating monster. The more you say, get out of here, you don't belong, the more that monster gets more aggressive, bigger, more smelly, more of a problem. And that's just like what you experience in meditation. If you're experiencing restlessness, thoughts, ache here, a pain there, it can go on forever. And if you try to get rid of it and say, I need to move this, I need to move that, I need to just focus on my breath, I need to do this, I need to do that. That sort of striving creates energy and that energy stops you feeling peaceful. And so the best way, it's not the, the most comfortable way at first, but after five or ten minutes it becomes very, very comfortable. It's just letting things be, allowing them to be. The reason I say that, there was somebody on a Friday night, I'm not sure if they're here, they were talking about the fact that 
sometimes when they're working uh, in as a nurse palliative care, that they were getting migraines after work because it was just a lot of, oh, well, not palliative care, so it was in the Dementia Ward. And it was a lot of kind of stress. And asked what to do when I get uh, uh, migraines after working with the patients. You know, sometimes she cannot react with a compassionate, kind way, but the migraine takes over. And that's where I remember this gentleman, his ashes are buried just behind me in the garden there, Ron's story. And I remember he was suffering from migraines uh, when he was working in the British Army many, many years ago. And he said the only way he coped with those migraines is to find a quiet place, a dark place, and he said, sit still and go inside. And that's how he put it. He wasn't a Buddhist yet, but he had this way of coping with the migraines by going deep inside. When he described what he did, he was going deep inside that feeling of, of pain, going deep inside, and he found that spot where the pain couldn't reach him. And there, his whole body started to vanish. And he got into this, you know, what we call these jhana states. And I love that story because you know, it was actually showing what can be done even with sort of quite severe pain. But more than that, unfortunately the end of that story was once he, his migraines vanished and disappeared, then he couldn't get into the deep meditations anymore. And it was a bit of happiness and no more migraines, but you know, a bit of disappointment. Why could I do that when I had the... Um, the meditation, when I had the migraines, but I can't get into that meditation, now my mind is okay. It was actually, that was almost forcing him, compelling him to go deep inside the peace of the mind states. But anyhow, uh, one of the things which it did teach me is that it's like when you come here, many of you came in your car, and when you come in the car, when you park the car, the engine is still hot. How long does it take for the engine to cool down? It's the same when you come here and sit on the chair, on the cushion. How long does it take for your mind to cool down? It takes a while before the water gets perfectly still, but it does. That's something which I know. That's something which gives me confidence. If I have a mind and it's quite agitated, it won't be still right now, I've learned how to wait. And I know how to wait. Wait is where you just watch this moment, like a, a waiter in a restaurant. You're waiting on the customers. You have to be aware of every moment. So the first time it looks like they've finished their meal, you can actually change their plate or ask them what dessert they need. And waiting, is that two types of waiting. Waiting in the present, which is being aware in this present, like serving this present moment, making sure you're observing right now so you, feel, you know what's needed right now. And that's a good type of waiting. The other type of waiting is waiting in the future, which is always like waiting for something to happen. And that's not really a, the real form of waiting. That's always expecting something. So if you know the, the correct form of waiting, just in this moment, it gives you patience. And you're confident, as long as you leave things alone, that it will get more and more still and more and more pleasant. Like this water over here. 
if I just interrupted it and said, are you still yet? Come on, be still. How long do you think I have to wait for you? And of course, you may be chuckling at that, but sometimes people do that in their mind. They expect too much, rather than leaving things alone and waiting for your mind to calm down. And that's actually you know, how we, we learn how to meditate. And it is the experience of our past, the faith, the confidence we have in our past experience. We know what waiting is. We know it does actually get better and better and better and better. The longer we sit there, we wait and let things be. And of course, people always complain. They say, no, what about when you get dull and sleepy? And all those years when I fought with dullness and sleepiness, you always found out, fortunately found out, that if it's dull and sleepy, please let it be. Don't fight it. What is dullness anyway? It's low energy. And you don't want to waste your energy by fighting something, fighting some sort of ghost you don't know what to do. That's why you've got to do something about it anyway. No, let it be. Well, one lets it be, doesn't fight, just watches. I don't know if you've had those experiences, but you know, as monks, you know, sometimes the time is not our own. Sometimes we do too much service, sometimes we do get tired and exhausted. But when we do get tired and exhausted, sometimes that, what do you do? There's many occasions I get up to meditate and then my head is almost hitting the floor. And I used to fight that, but never again. Instead, I let my posture have a head which is just almost hitting the floor. But then I just leave it alone. And because I protect my mind from re overreacting, I hope you've had this experience yourself, but the, the tiredness, the dullness disappears by itself. It's one of those weird phenomena when you're sitting here and you feel so tired, and the, the, again, the head is so sort of droopy. I can't really droop because I've got this booming microphone in front of me. I'll hit it. And so instead, you know, just imagine my head drooping a little bit. And then you straighten up by yourself. And when that, that first time that happened, I was very clear I never straightened up my body. It straightened up automatically, again, by itself, which was weird and strange. I know that my body does what it wants to do. My job is just to care for it. If it needs to sort of uh, uh, be half bent over, fine. It will straighten up all by itself. It's a beautiful experience when the body eventually does straighten. And I remember the first time that happened, I was very clear, I never did that. I never told it what to do. The body did it automatically. And when I trust my body that much, it straightens up automatically. Then when it does straighten up, there's no restlessness, the tiredness, the dullness has gone. Basically, the mind has uh, woken up. The mind has just started to get its strength and power back. And then the sleepiness, the dullness has gone, but it's not re replaced by the restlessness. And so this is how, you know, sometimes when I start meditating, been talking to many people, sometimes dealing with many problems, some really quite big problems, and that's you know, part of my job. And I can't 
say when that I do that job, if somebody needs you and you help. But you do know how when that's over, you may feel a bit tired. You sit here. I'm not embarrassed about being tired. I leave it alone, let it be patient. Be kind to it, open the door of my heart to it. And I know it can't last that long. And the energy starts coming back. When the energy starts coming back, my body straightens up by itself. And the mind becomes beautifully focused in this moment. I always remember from those early experiences, when I try and fight the restlessness, it's coming from a sense of self, of ego. When I stop fighting and let it be, have this beautiful kindness to what I'm experiencing. Yes, the mindfulness is not strong, but it's enough, strong enough to protect myself from interfering. And then soon, it's usually only five minutes, then the body gets strong. It, it gets, uh, straightens up, the mindfulness increases in its power. It can see much more easily things like the peace in this moment. I've found if I want to have good things, if I say I want to have a nice, uh, good posture, comfort, if I want to have like uh, awareness in my mind, every time I want something I'm taking away the power of the mind. I let this process be a natural unfolding, making peace, being kind, being gentle, and the words which are written in front of me. And it works. That's why I, I love that translation of the second factor of the Eightfold Path. Make peace, be kind, and be gentle. And it's not just what I do in public, it's what I do in my room when I'm meditating, when no one can see how I practice in my cave, which is uh, underground in Serpentine. All of those things, I do that because I know that's the path, that's what works. So if you are restless, if you are disturbed, whether it's by the heat, by what you've had to do beforehand, the vehicle in your car has a warm engine. Leave it. It will cool off by itself. That's its nature. And I know my mind will become still by itself. I don't make it still. That's why often I tell people I don't do meditation. Meditation happens when I uh, stand apart and just watch with kindness. I cultivate the mind. In other words, like a farmer, I water the ground, but I don't make the plants grow. I give them the best conditions. I give the best causes for the mind to become still. And then you find the mind does become still. When it does become still, that awareness becomes strong and also the energy of the mind increases. That's why quite often when I start the afternoon meditation, especially on a hot day like today, you feel tired. 
but I know, almost like guarantee, even though you can't predict the future, I can guarantee just when the meditation finishes at uh, four o'clock, my mind will be nice and bright and feel peace and happiness. And I won't want to ring that gong, but I always train myself to have to ring it for you because the mind is at peace, happy, content. So that's just the introduction to the meditation. So now we can actually do the meditation. And again, this is the ongoing class for those who are for the introduction to meditation class uh, being taught by good friend Dennis next door. That is again next door. Here we usually meditate for 45 minutes or 40 minutes. So anyway, let's get started. So when I start, I've had my eyes closed for a while, for you. If you haven't got your eyes closed yet, please close them. The reason why we close our eyes is it cuts off a lot of potential disturbance in seeing the sense of sight gets reduced in importance. So it can eventually turn off. So the mind can become more quiet. Hearing is a reasonably quiet place. After a while, the, your ears don't pick up sounds. And nose, smell, taste, and physical touch. You want to calm down the sense of physical touch by having some physical comfort. And that's why we start the meditation with a quick uh, scan of our own body. I always usually ask myself at the very beginning, how are my toes? On this 45 minute meditation, I can be a bit more careful at the very beginning. And that's my way of being mindful of toes, asking them. It's like you do develop this good relationship with parts of your body. How are you, toes? Takes a few seconds, but then you pick up the awareness of your toes. They're not perfect, but they're good enough. It is the kindness which we add to the meditation which doesn't just allow awareness to happen, but makes that awareness fulfill its purpose to relax the body. So my toes feel reasonably good. Then you go to your feet, the soles of the feet, the uppers of the feet, the skin above, the heels. And I can feel all my feet. Just ask the question, the body will give you the information. And is there any way I can make my own feet more comfortable? And if I need to move, I will. Even if you don't move, just that, that feeling, that intention of giving your feet comfort actually works. I sometimes have all of these uh, mental examples or images, like just feeling my feet 
sinking into a nice cool bowl of water. Not cold, not hot, but just cool. And it makes my feet just relax and open up. Nothing seems to be pressuring them or blocking the free flow of blood and limbs and any other energy which flows through my feet. And I aim for relaxing them to the max. Sometimes tension is not observed on the outside, sometimes it's inside. Some maybe inflammation, because some injury, and that blocks healing. It's like even parts of the body try and uh, protect themselves over much, and that causes some inner stress of those muscles in the feet. I know those, and I release them. So my whole feet feels free. Things can come and go and flow through them easily. And that creates a sensation which is of very comfortable feet, which I've got to know really well. And when I can feel that and know those feet are relaxed, I go up to the ankles relax them. I always feel them like sinking into soft cotton wool cushions. Not the cushions we've got here, they're very hard, but the soft ones. I'm just allowing those ankles to just sink in to the softness, feeling safe until they feel so at ease. And then I go up from the ankles to the calves of my legs and allowing them to feel at ease. Lessening any tension. Sometimes those muscles you know, in calves or thighs Sometimes they feel that they've been pulled apart, stretched. I just want to loosen them. So nothing is being pulled, squashed. Everything is naturally loose and at ease. Everyone should have their eyes closed. So it doesn't matter just what you look like, but how you feel. Are you feeling more relaxed? I go to my knees. Now, the first time in this meditation, I felt all the sensations in my knees. Now I can tell whether they are relaxed or not. Would I can perceive those sensations in my knees? Again, I know them very well. And so it's quite easy to bring them to a deeper state of re relaxation. Don't hold anything tightly. Don't squash anything. Don't stretch anything. Because I'm telling every muscle in my knees, every ligament, every whatever's there, 
to let go, be at ease. And soon I, I can feel those at ease sensations starting to permeate my own knees. And then from there I go up the thighs. Relaxing them to the max. Until I get to my buttocks. Buttocks are pretty simple because you always recognize that feeling of pressure of the body sitting on the chair or the cushion. I just want to make sure this None of that pressure is just focused narrowly on one spot. It's spread evenly over my buttocks. Because that's the most comfortable. And because it's comfortable, it will soon disappear. There's something, an insight to know about the nature of your brain. It only notices sort of dangers, things which change, things which are intense. Things which are usual vanish. And I also know that's how to cope if it's very hot when you're meditating. Don't put too much importance on the, the sense of heat, because if you do, then it will stay with you, that sensation of being hot. If you can make it at ease, the body survives, no trouble, it's not that hot. And then you find that the sensation of heat vanishes. It becomes like the sound of the aircon or the sound of the fans. It disappears. And then once you go up from your buttocks up to your waist, it's an important part of your body. So I usually stretch my back at this point, and that gets my back into the optimum position. My waist feels comfy. It's a comfy, comfortableness which I know it will last by itself. I don't need to keep putting effort into focusing my mind. And then I go up my back, looking for any tightnesses or tensions anywhere. I did notice my robe is a bit tight around my neck, so I loosen it a bit. And I scan upwards from my body again. This time just going up the digestive tract. That's you know, the thing which occupies most of my lower body. And as I scan upwards, if I find anything which needs some more relaxation, I pause there and just imagine it relaxing, 
and it actually does. Imagine all those passages which digest the food and allow the food to be absorbed by the body. Flowing at ease. As you keep scanning upwards you get to your stomach. Sometimes I'm amazed at how aware you can be of your stomach. It's part of your body and after a while of training you can feel it. Once you can feel it, you can relax it. Bring it to a state of ease and peace. When you're first aware of part of the body like a stomach, sometimes it is a bit tense. This is where that bit of patience helps. You're kind, you don't expect immediate results. But you learn how to relax and be at peace with things. And then it gets more and more comfortable as the minutes go past. Sometimes amazes me. Remember times in Thailand my stomach was really, really sick. Were you aware of it? And this the pain, the tension, the tightness, the unease just disappears slowly. But it goes. And you go up from your stomach to your lungs. I found this really important when there's so many colds and coughs and COVID and stuff. Just learning how to be at peace with your lungs. And that kind of strengthens them. up to your heart region. Making peace as you go along. You also find when you can relax your body and it becomes more peaceful, the mindfulness is easier to perform. It's more joyful, more attractive. Of course it's always much easier to do something which you tell yourself is pleasant to do. Then I get to my, eventually to my shoulders. And those shoulders, I learn just how to feel them and relax them. Not hold them tight, let them be loose. Let gravity just allow them to be loose. And as I said, it's really pleasant to let your body, you're focusing on a part of the body and you're allowing it to relax. You're letting it happen. And then I go past my elbows. Sometimes I go past them too fast. Today I'm just lingering there. Go down my forearms to my wrists, and my hands, the palm of my hands first, they're a bit hot. 
and they're comfortable. Then to my fingers. I haven't been aware of my fingers since I started this meditation. Now I'm aware of them and they're all really comfy. It's like I ask them, do you need any attention? Do you need to be moved? And the answer comes, no. They're at peace. So I go up back to my shoulders. And I've realized I've relaxed my whole body from the neck down. And I can feel that. And the body feels so at ease and kind of grateful. Then I go up to my neck and I always realize that it's the position of my head dominates the comfort of my neck. So I make sure my head is not too far forward or too far back, not too f far to either side. I move my head around to get what I keep calling the optimum position. Once I find that optimum position, I know my neck will be comfy. And then last of all, for my head, to relax the muscles and the skin and muscles covering my skull. I especially focus on the area around my eyes, my nose and my mouth. It's interesting to relax those muscles while you're even talking. You learn how to do that. I can feel no tension around my mouth or eyes or nose. Everything is at ease. Nothing is being held tightly. You have the feeling of comfort. You can't fool yourself when you've done this so many hundreds of times. And then I know I've relaxed parts of my body one by one. Now I relax the body as a whole, as a unit. Feel that body and how it's at ease. It's in a comfortable posture. You notice my waist is a bit, it's dropped a bit, so I'm going to straighten that a bit. And that feels better. And I enjoy the peace. And I even say the pleasure, it is pleasurable, of a relaxed body. And I do linger there. It took me a while to be courageous enough to linger with the pleasure of a relaxed body. Because I always thought pleasure was dangerous for a monk. But then I realized just how much more relaxed you become focusing on the pleasure of relaxation.
and I allowed my body to get very, very relaxed. And then I start moving on to the mind. I ask myself, how peaceful are you? I know what peace feels like. So you get to know peace. Get to know the different levels of peace. You don't need to give them names. But you can feel your mind becoming more and more peaceful the less you do. Awareness is natural. You don't have to tell yourself to be mindful. You're just aware. in this moment. And this is the beautiful part of mindfulness. It grows stronger by itself. You realize the more you do, the more you interfere. You just watch this moment, the only moment you ever have. and the mindfulness increases. You start to experience experience parts of your mind you'd never seen before. I like it when that happens because it certainly stops my inner speech. I don't have words to describe how this feels. I know it's always 100% safe. Just interesting and enjoyable. So you can understand what silence feels like as an experience. Not as a word, but as an experience inside. You know this moment you don't even try to find a name for it. Said you enjoy it. And as you enjoy the peace, the silence in this moment, you move more and more away from the world feeling in your body of heat or cold or tiredness gets more and more distant from you. And soon, sometimes you can start experiencing your breathing. Sometimes you go straight to nimittas. You go deep into the mind, it brightens up more and more. More and more joy, more and more happiness. Until bliss starts to come up. Many of you have experienced that before. Don't be afraid. Let it come, let it happen. Enjoy to the max. 
Please excuse me, I have to stop talking now.
Really getting close to the end of the meditation now. How do you feel? How peaceful are you inside? Can you notice the joy, the pleasure aspect of peace? Real peace of mind. How is your body, this shell in which we live, how does it feel? How relaxed are you? When the body is very much at peace, it's like the any unpleasantness outside, even heat or cold, tends to not be important anymore. You're at peace. And peace is very comfortable. So I'm now going to ring the gong three times. Please wait for every sound from the gong to vanish before opening your eyes. really nice. Sometimes when they give me the meditation <coughs> I recall sometimes as a young student I'd be in some places in UK during the winter time which was really freezing and still could meditate and it was very very cold didn't have enough blankets to wrap around me, but still, you could sit there quietly and after a while you just could not feel your body. Just the mind just went to peace. And it wasn't the case I was so cold I was numb. 
It was just like you tend to go inside. And you kind of feel the cold, but it's like too far away from you to really disturb you. So it's nice to be able to do that with heat as well. Once you get reasonably mindful, reasonably still, the body tends to look after itself. But anyway, usually after the meditation is finished, we have any questions from the internet first of all. Is the internet working? Oh, yesterday evening I only had one question. The internet was not really functioning. Thank you. Still only one question. Crikey. It's amazing. Anyway. Dear Ajahn Brahm, does kindness during the day help one get into jhanas? How can we live life to help samadhi as lay life? And of course, the kindness is always helpful. Usually, as long as you have the kindness together with the wisdom. Because sometimes people misunderstand what kindness is. As I said last night, people said, how do you practice kindness? without feeling it being exploited. And of course that kindness has to go to not just other beings, has to also include yourself as well. So when kindness is like the sun, it's, you know, it shines on the person, sort of as being helpful to somebody, feeding somebody who's very poor. And it also is, falls on the person who's doing that feeding as well as a person who's receiving that feeding. That simile of like the, the rays of the sun lighting up the world, keeping it warm. That's like kindness. It doesn't depend upon the person giving or the person receiving. The kindness is for both. And so, if you really understand what kindness is, that kindness is for others as well as oneself. That's one of the reasons why and sometimes you see me, for example, that sometimes that I just hide in my room. I don't come out and serve 24-7, as I know that if you know, I don't get some rest myself, if I don't get some uh, time to get some nice meditation, the ability for me to be kind and serve you is lessened. So when I practice kindness, it's not just the normal way which you'd expect of me helping everybody, asking how you are. There's a time when I ask how I am. And I manage to find some peace for myself and, you know, for this body and mind. So I can help and have more energy to teach and be kind to others. Oh, we have got another question again. This is from Ukraine, from Anton. Can one be enlightened at time, or you either are or are not in full forever? And the answer is that once one is fully enlightened, of course it is forever, until eventually one passes away and then your whole body and mind process stops forever. But to be enlightened at some time and then not, 
Remember the enlightenment is the a destroying of like delusion and understanding what wanting is. So you never need to want anything ever again. You still serve and help motivated by kindness, by compassion. That's one of the reasons, you know, why? Why is it that someone who is fully enlightened, sometimes they when they don't teach, they were usually called Pajekabuddha, silent enlightened ones. Didn't have the teach the ability or the inclination to teach. And uh, they just passed away quietly. But you know, if one is oh got lots now of questions. That uh, usually you are or you are not in full forever. But it's when you, you teach or you don't teach. It's basically it's not expressed the enlightenment. I think as somebody once said, I think this was in the time of the Buddha, like if a person is like injured, maybe they've got a a prosthetic leg or something. Do they always know they have a prosthetic leg? And it's only when they turn their attention to that. They know, yes, this is not a real leg, this is a prosthetic leg. Soon they get so used to it that it's just, it's not an object which is always in their mind 100% of the time. It's available to know at any time. But it's not always the object uh, which you are thinking about or knowing. Anyway, first of all is one question, and then two questions, and now five questions. This is from East Java, from Colin. I have relatives that are trying to meditate, but they don't seem to practice other aspects of the Eightfold Path, such as cultivate sila, as the precepts, any advice on this? And of course I must say that when I first became a Buddhist, as a student, it was a meditation which really inspired me. I thought I was wise, but everyone feels they're wise. It takes a while for that wisdom to really grow and become strong. But even my precepts weren't very strong when I first started to meditate. And it was only after meditating a lot when your mindfulness started to increase in its power, just you know, what was the opposite of precepts and virtue never made any sense to me anymore. That's why that you know my meditation started first, and then the precepts came afterwards. But they had to come. There was no way that you could do stupid things like hurting another person or hurting yourself. That was why. You know, when it comes to precepts, to actually explain them, why, what are they? That was the beautiful words of the Buddha to his son, Anansa Rahula, who once told him, he said, never do anything which harms another person, another being, or harms yourself. What I call the two precepts. When I say two precepts, many people get excited, they want to listen more about the two precepts because the five precepts are a bit hard for some people. But the two precepts are all the precepts that ever was or ever could be. Never doing anything which hurts or harms another, never doing anything which hurts or harms yourself. 
all the precepts stem from that. I remember, oh, maybe 40 years ago, when we were in our place in Magnolia Street, a group of kids, you know, primary school kids came. They wanted to understand a little bit more about Buddhism, so they came to our center there and I talked to them. And when I started talking about precepts, how do you talk to you know, primary school kids about precepts? And I said, well, basically there's two precepts. Not do anything which hurts or harms another, not doing anything which hurts or harms yourself. So what hurts or harms another person? What hurts or harms yourself? And these were all just ordinary West Australian school kids. It only took them about five or ten minutes to get all the five precepts. They always realized that this is what hurts or harms others. They're obviously kidding, stealing. Sometimes they've lost you know, their bicycle or something which belonged to them. It really hurts them when they can't find it because somebody else has taken it. Or killing something. Or even, these were just young kids, but they even understood about you know, relationships and not playing around behind somebody else's back and how lying meant you can't trust people, you can't trust your friends. And even I was surprised how they got the precept that drugs and alcohol are harmful to oneself and to others. Still remembered going to, a long time ago, there was the head of Thai Airways here in Perth many years ago, he invited me to bless his house and I was talking to his kids and I was doing the same uh, subject about virtue and peace. And I just asked him, and he said, well, alcohol, what's wrong with taking a drink? And then his kids said, oh, you get drunk. And then I shouldn't have said this, but nevertheless, in front of the, the head of Thai Airways, who was their father and many other Thai people, I said to the kid, have you ever seen anybody drunk? And they pointed to their father, said, yeah, him. <laughs> and the father was so embarrassed, but he took it well. And this is where you understand where virtue comes from, but sometimes the meditation comes first. Sometimes after you get some meditation, your mindfulness and awareness becomes clear, you realize more and more just how important it is uh, to keep things like precepts. And that's why if any of you ever come to Bodhinyana Monastery during an ordination, or over to Dhammasara like we did a couple of weeks ago for an ordination of, of uh, Bhikkhuni, you see that I always say that in the little verses of summing up, that when meditation is empowered by virtue, it's a great benefit, it's very deep. Sila Paribhavito Samadhi Mahapalohoti Mahani Sangsa. Please, I'm only saying in Pali just to make sure I keep remembering this. It means that when your meditation samadhi is empowered, backed, supported by virtue, it's of great power, Mahapalo and Mahani Sangsa of great benefit of great use. I know many people ask, how can my meditation go deeper? And that's actually how it goes deeper. You're more virtuous. 
and virtue is includes things like kindness, compassion, service. And the more that happens, the more deep is your meditation. It's a natural process. Next question, Ajahn Brahm. Do our hearts cry? I saw a video of Ajahn Mahabhua crying in compassion of human beings in YouTube. I remember that simile just caused a lot of controversy at the time. Do enlightened beings cry? And there is something, one part of this beautiful um, happiness you get in meditation is when it's called pity. And there's many forms of this joy, this bliss which happens. And one is that just the tears start to flow. This is not a uh, crying out of compa out of concern for the sufferings of others. It's the, the crying out of joy, of deep inspiration. This is beautiful. And I think I've mentioned to each one of you that there is two places in India which I, I cry. And one of those places is that, that Dhammachaka Buddha statue outside of Sanat's in the museum. I can't help it. When I see that, it's so beautiful. It's never crying out of sadness. It's crying out of just in, in delight. And they're seeing this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful statue which just, just connects with me immediately. And the other place which I cry, and I, I don't try and stop it or control it, it was on the vulture's peak, you know, where the Buddha spent so many years meditating up there. And if I'm not sure what it's like now, but I remember when I went up there the first time, this was the real vulture's peak. And there was a, a stone just at the, um, just by the cave where the Buddha would sat, sit in meditation. And it was shaped like a, like a vulture with wings. The next time I went, I saw half of the wing had broken off. No, too many visitors probably. But nevertheless, you can understand that this was a real vulture's peak. It was not a place which had been made up by tourist authority. And it was also a little inaccessible, which meant that you could just, you didn't have to pay to go in there. There was no sort of shops outside, you know, selling stuff. It was as probably as close as you could get to how the Buddha would have experienced it when he was alive 25 centuries ago. A cave where it was so obvious that's where the Buddha meditated. And you could go in there and sit meditation. And that sort of power was just you know, overcoming for me. And I just, tears, happy tears, inspirational tears came down. That type of happiness to be encouraged. It's natural and it's part of the joy of inspiration which comes. I mentioned this to, I'm not really sure it's to you or to others, uh, recently. When I hear a good Dhamma talk, a beautiful, inspiring piece of teachings, such as you would get from someone like an Ajahn Chah, and they really connect deeply with you, you feel just so just uplifted the tears come to your eyes. 
And these are all inspirational um, joys. Nothing to do with negativity. Next question. Ajahn, do you carry an ID? Do you worry about identity theft? <laughs> I do sometimes worry, who am I? Or am I? <laughs> so, yes, I do carry a passport when I go to the airport, otherwise they wouldn't let me fly, they wouldn't let me come back into the country. So, oh yeah, I carry one of those, but not all the time. So in Australia, I don't really need to carry around ID because I haven't got a, a driving license. I can't drive. What's well, It's a monkey, don't drive. So the only ID which I have, although I do remember once going to, uh, to a conference. It was, it was a beautiful conference. It was over in the Whitsunday Islands many years ago. So I had to go to Melbourne first of all, and then from Melbourne up to Queensland. And because it was domestic, you didn't really need a pa I didn't need a passport. So I didn't have any ID. When I got to Melbourne they asked for ID. I didn't have any. But then I thought very quickly, what I did have was a couple of copies of Opening the Door of Your Heart. And on the back of that book, there's a photo of me. A photo of me, Ajahn Brahm, and I accepted that. <laughs> I was very lucky, that's all I had. So, if you carry around a copy of your book, then that's ID. Especially when you have a photo of it on it, there somewhere. And identity theft, I don't know, who'd, who would actually want to steal my identity? If they did, please come up and I'll give it to you. <laughs> and you'll have to do all my work. <laughs> yeah, indeed. No credit card or my name, nothing. So, because of that, what can they do with identity theft? Yeah, indeed, yeah. You'd be very, very disappointed. They should steal it, and then you realize just, you know, just if you do all that work, you get nothing out of it. <laughs> yeah. Think of all the donations we can get in your name. You get to be what? Donations. <laughs> donations, well, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Anyway. Do you reach a state in which you'd enter jhana every time we meditate? Every time you meditate, you understand that the jhanas happen when the causes are present for those jhanas. It's not something you do. It's something which happens when you stop doing things. And that's one of the reasons why I did mention this to you a long time ago. And it's a powerful teaching. And that was when somebody asked me in Sri Lanka, Ajahn Brahm, you teach about jhanas, but Ajahn Brahm, can you do jhanas? And I said straight away, Ajahn Brahm cannot enter jhana. And straight away, people thought, I'm one of these other fake teachers. And they teach other people, then they can never do it themselves. And then I explain it to them. 
Ajahn Brahm has to disappear first of all. When I do things, that's when my identity gets stronger. The more you strive, the more your ego gets strong. When I let go, when I stop doing things, the mindfulness increases, the joy increases, I disappear. When I disappear, then the doors to jhana are open. As soon as there is any sense of ownership, any sense of, well done Ajahn Brahm, yeah, great meditation. Whenever you think like that, you're closing the opportunity for jhana. It won't happen. It has to be where you vanish. So, do you reach a state which you'd enter jhana every time you meditate? Only when you disappear. When you're sitting there and Ajahn Brahm is gone. When you disappear. That's one of the reasons why you never can feel any pride. Oh, look at me, I got second jhana. And someone else comes up, only second jhana, oh, I got that last week. I got third jhana, look at me. <laughs> that sort of stuff doesn't happen. If it does happen like that, or someone claims stuff like that, I realize it's false. These are not what the jhanas are about. That's where the jhanas and the, the insights of non-self, that's where they start to merge. You can't do jhanas. You vanish and then they happen naturally. Lastly, from Poland. Which days are the best to visit you, Ajahn Brahm? I've got no idea. I find it very hard to visit me. I like to vanish and disappear so even I can't find me. So it must be really impossible for you. <laughs> Do you understand that? Okay, so th thank you for those questions. Anyone want to ask another question before we finish off? Good. Okay. A <laughs> bill. <laughs> no, please, that any other questions you can please come up. But uh, today at 5 p.m. I've got another Zoom. Uh, meeting uh, with the uh, volunteers in the Anukampa Bhikkhuni project over in UK. So please don't keep me for too long. Okay, so we can just pay respects to the Buddha first of all, Dhamma and Sangha, and then we can go and do what we need to do. <laughs> <laughs>